0: Welcome to this PTJ podcast. PTJ is the official publication of the American Physical Therapy Association. PTJ disseminates basic and applied science related to physical therapy, contributes evidence to guide clinical decision-making, and publishes scholarly perspectives from around the world.
1: So some people with Parkinson's disease have more trouble with balance. Others might have more trouble with motor organization. Others might have more trouble with strength. Having a defensible decision-making process
2: involves understanding what the patient's problems are and then focusing on those tasks. But I'm wondering, what do I do with the numbers? What do I do with the data?
1: We now know from this body of work a range that we could expect for our patients, and we can begin to identify outliers.
0: Welcome to this PTJ Discussion Podcast. Outcome Measures for People with Parkinson Disease. In the September 2011 issue of PTJ, Dr. Margaret Schenkman and colleagues published cross-sectional data on a variety of measures for individuals in the early and mid-stages of Parkinson's disease. Joining Dr. Schenkman in today's clinically-focused discussion is neurologic clinical specialist Dr. Kathleen Gilbody. And now, our moderator, PTJ Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Rebecca Craik.
3: Hello, my name is Becky Craig. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Physical Therapy, and I'm delighted to be here today to discuss a paper that was just published in the September 2011 issue of Physical Therapy entitled, Profile of Functional Limitations and Task Performance Among People with Early and Middle-Stage Parkinson Disease. The first author, Dr. Margaret Shankman, is here with us today, as well as Dr. Kathleen Gilbody. I'm going to begin by introducing Dr. Shankman. Margaret has a wonderful background, for those of you who don't know her. She had a bachelor's degree in chemistry, a Ph.D. from Yale in microbiology, and then she came into physical therapy. She's currently the program director for the physical therapy program in the School of Medicine at the University of Colorado. Welcome, Margaret.
1: Thank you, Becky. It is a
3: pleasure to be here. The person that I asked to help us with this discussion is Dr. Kathleen Gilbody. Kathy is currently a senior physical therapist at Newton Wesley Hospital in Newton, Massachusetts. She's also an adjunct professor at MGH, Massachusetts General Hospital Institute of Health Professions. Kathy received her doctorate in physical therapy from MGH, and I've asked her here today to serve as a neuroclinical specialist. Welcome, Kathy.
2: Thanks, Beck. It's really nice to have the chance to speak to both you and Margaret.
3: Okay, so I'm going to ask Margaret to just give
1: us a brief overview of this paper. This is a piece of work that I'm really excited to publish in PTJ. What this paper is is a summary of a number of measures that we use for people who have Parkinson's disease to be able to quantify their ability to perform physically. And what's exciting about this paper is that with my colleague, Terry Ellis at Boston University and her colleagues there, and my colleagues here at the University of Colorado, we put together data from five different studies in which we've expected values for performance on a number of different common measures across different stages of Parkinson's disease. And this gives us a database from which both clinicians and researchers can begin to interpret both individual patients and patients within studies. Thank you. That was a great way for us to launch
3: our discussion. So, Kathy, is there anything you would like to comment upon at this point?
2: Yeah, I have a bunch of questions for you, Margaret. But I guess my first thing I'd like to discuss has to do with the idea of benchmarks in how they can best be used in clinical practice. And when I look at the data in your paper in particular, it gives us a much better overview of the progression of disability and functional limitations that we see with our patients. But I'm wondering, what do I do with the numbers? What do I do with the data? And I guess one of the first questions I wanted to ask you was whether you thought the benchmark data might be used also for goal setting and prognosis.
1: Kathy, I think that's a really good question, and it's one that I wish I could say, yes, we can definitely do that, but I really don't think we can do that quite yet. And the reason is that we don't have yet an understanding of how people change on these performance measures across stages of Parkinson's disease longitudinally. So we now know from this body of work a range that we could expect for our patients, and we can begin to identify outliers. And we also can begin to see with our patients whether they're right at the middle of the range for their stage of the disease or whether they're really performing quite well for that stage or quite poorly for that stage because we have some ranges of expected values. The problem is that people with Parkinson's disease change at very different rates on the Unified Parkinson's Disease Rating Scale, the UPDRS, which is an overall measure of Parkinson's disease used by all movement disorder specialists who are neurologists and also used by many neurologists. And I should mention that Terry Ellis, along with Lee Dibble from Utah and Gammon Earhart from Washington University in St. Louis, are actually collecting longitudinal data over two years with a number of these same measures. Once we know how people change over time, we'll be able to better figure out how to use measures for prognosis. In terms of goal setting, I think that these measures can be useful because knowing the range of expected values for a particular stage of the disease I think as a clinician, I would have a better feel for what might be realistic in terms of goals. Now, one thing that I should mention is Parkinson's disease is a degenerative process. Unlike a person who has a medial meniscal tear and you're going to increase strength and gait and stair climbing and you expect to get better, in this case, just staying the same may be useful.
2: That's exactly what I was struggling with, Margaret, as I sat and thought about does this mean clinically, is that I felt very uncomfortable at this point thinking about using the data for prognostic purposes, because I don't think that we're there yet based on this data, but I do think that the data could be useful to give context to the patient's performance, and that relates to setting a goal.
1: I think if I can also, and the other thing that I think was important about this paper is that... As we worked through the different measures, it became clear to us which ones were more appropriate for people at different stages of the disorder. And that's not something we've really had a very clear picture of, if I can only use a few measures, which ones should I use? It's a
3: perfect segue into asking you to tell us which measures you prefer when, and then we can have a discussion about some of the actual measures.
1: Well, I think that the measure that I prefer the most across all stages of the disease is this continuous-scale physical functional performance test, the CSPSP. And we can come back and talk about why that's not necessarily practical for everyone, but it's actually the best measure. Two measures that are helpful early on are both the functional reach measure and the functional axial rotation measure. These are measures that we begin to pick up change from the beginning, the functional reach, because it doesn't have the same feeling effects that a measure like supine to stand does. And the functional axial rotation, because spinal flexibility is one of the first things that people lose with Parkinson's disease, just looking cross sectionally. And again, that's not a longitudinal statement. What would you recommend
3: for further Later in
1: the disease, later in the disease I would continue to use functional reach until the person gets down to about six inches, after which it's really not meaningful. I would transition from the six-minute walk to the two-minute walk later in the disease because it became clear that for people early in the disease, the two-minute walk doesn't pick up problems, whereas the six-minute walk does. And then for people who are later in the disease, the two-minute walk becomes quite useful. I would also begin to use measures like the supine to stand and stand to supine later in the disease. If I'm working particularly on trying to help improve the ability to do these transitions from lying down to getting up. Another measure that's very helpful later in the disease is the 360 turn, because that measure picks up the problems the person has with transitional movement and balance. And again, as they get later into the disorder, that becomes quite problematic
2: I would agree with the summary Margaret just gave. I'd like to talk a little bit more about the continuous-scale physical functional performance, if that's okay. I'm not all that familiar with it in terms of using it in practice. So I'm wondering, Margaret, if you can talk a little bit with us about the practicality. I did go and look up some more information about it. I went to the website and looked at some of the other prior reports, and I'm wondering if this is a test that's practical in most clinics, and if not,
1: what then? I am delighted to answer that question because I have a great, great, great affection for the CSPFP. I first came to know about this test when I was at Duke University and was setting up my initial randomized controlled trial with exercise for people with Parkinson's disease and it became very clear to me that I was having trouble picking up changes on the measures I was using when I could see changes functionally. And I think the reason is that for a disease like Parkinson's disease, probably also true with people who have stroke or traumatic brain injury, and any of a number of other disorders, there's a huge variability in the presentation of symptoms. So some people with Parkinson's disease have more trouble with balance. Others might have more trouble with motor organization. Others might have more trouble with strength. And what happens is we choose a measure that's a unidimensional measure like functional reach, And if the person we're working with has trouble with balance, that measure may pick it up. But if the person is within normal for that measure, he or she may not change much. The beauty of the continuous scale physical functional performance test is that it combines measures of upper body strength, lower body strength, flexibility, endurance, and balance, all within a functional context. And so people actually do these functional tasks in the laboratory Their time, they choose how much weight they can carry, and they choose how fast they're going to move. And they do the task continuously, which is another important issue for people with Parkinson's disease. So you're really picking up capacity to function. These are real-life tests, moving laundry from a washer to a dryer or sweeping up kitty litter from the floor, for example. They're real tests. The original test was a 16-item test. But the test has actually been scaled down to a 10-item test, which Elaine Kress and colleagues, including myself, published a few years ago. And that Mm -hmm. test, I think, actually is feasible in most clinical settings. Elaine actually has used this test in community centers and has a portable mock-up washer-dryer that she carries with her that she can bring with her and use and collect the data. So if she can do it in a community center or in a Life Care Center, I think we can do it in most clinics if we put our minds to it. Kathy, go Margaret, ahead. Margaret, one,
2: one of the other things that I was thinking about as I reviewed your paper was whether or not it's best for us, particularly in the early stages of trying to identify functional limitations, whether or not it's best to have a combination of measures rather than one single measure, if in fact using a couple of different measures together might be better at identifying early deterioration, which is so hard to do in this population. You're probably familiar with Dibble's work where he asked this question related to identifying fall risk and reported that using a combination of measures might be better than using a single
1: measure. That's a really interesting concept, and it's one that I hadn't particularly grappled with yet, But I think it's a very important question and one that I will go back and talk with Terry about and also with other colleagues who are working with people who have early Parkinson's disease. The test that I think may turn out to be the very best, we mentioned this in the discussion of the paper, is one that Faye Horak has developed, which is the instrumented tug, the eye tug, The problem with that test is that it, again, may not be accessible to every clinic because one has to have the instrument and equipment and the ability to analyze the data. But that test seems to be very sensitive to picking up changes early in the disease. The dilemma is that we can work with someone who we know is having trouble and the person knows he's having trouble and yet our measures aren't showing it. And whether any of the combination of measures would show it isn't clear to me yet. But it's something I'm going to go back and look at and see whether maybe we could pull out some measures that do pick up the problems early.
2: Yeah, I agree with you, Margaret. And I think that in the clinic, having a defensible decision-making process involves understanding what the patient's problems are and then focusing on those tasks and analyzing those tasks. And then the challenge is to then choose appropriate outcome measures that will reflect the patient's ability at the beginning of intervention that can then be used periodically to judge response to intervention. So you're right. There are some patients in the clinic with Parkinson's disease that I might have my outcome measure related to their patient's cardiopulmonary endurance or long-distance walking because it may be that the two-minute or the six-minute walk test reflects the constellation of that particular patient's primary movement problems and that that test is my judgment as the one that is most likely to change if the patient has a positive response to intervention or not change if they don't deteriorate further. And for another patient, I may be picking some tests that involve doing two things at once in the context of a balanced test. So I may be picking a standardized balanced test or fall risk measure because that captures that particular patient's best primary movement, problem, combination, whatever that is. We don't have a really good way of diagnosing or even talking about that, but that's the piece of the decision-making that we're doing to choose the most appropriate outcome measure to judge progress. So what I think one of the great things about your paper is it offers us some new information about some of the tests that many of us have been doing. And then it gives us the context of early versus late stage and allows us to think a little bit more about how to put that information into our choice of outcome measures so that we have the best way of really measuring is the patient responding, is the patient maintaining, are we preventing problems, et cetera.
1: I'd like to go one step further, maybe someday in my work if I ever get a chance, and begin to try to figure out how we get to the next step of okay, we did all of this, but did it make a difference to their life? Which gets back to that question of, are we looking at activities or participation? And Because I think that one of the other real dilemmas is, when we work with people with a progressive disorder, what in the end is most meaningful? We need to measure at the level of activities and impairments to know whether our thinking is on target and our reasoning is correct and we're able to help the person make the changes that we thought needed to be made. But we need to find a way of also figuring out, did this actually change your life or not? It also means that we need to look at mortality and morbidity, because changing the person's life with Parkinson's disease also can mean reducing pneumonias, for example. But we don't have a handle on any of those kinds of outcomes yet.
3: It's a really, really important point that you've made, and I wish I could shout it from the rooftop. I want to go back, Margaret, because I think the other piece that this work really helps the reader understand is the Honan-Yar and the UPDRS and the relationship that those two may or may not have
1: with the kinds of physical performance measures that you used in this test.
3: Would you talk a little bit
1: about that? Certainly. That was something that we struggled with when we first put these data together. Should we use the UPDRS? Should we use the Hon and yar Should we use both? So the UPDRS, the Unified Parkinson's Disease Rating Scale, is used in almost all data looking at neurologic interventions. So it's become the standard for looking at the response to pharmacologic interventions, the response to deep brain stimulation, and so on. The problem with the UPDRS is that it's a fairly lengthy exam to use, and it requires substantial training to use it in a reliable and valid manner. On the other hand, it does give a very good breakdown across the stages of disease that's extremely helpful. In research, that's the measure that I would use. Mm -hmm. From a clinical point of view, the and Yar is much more practical for me as a physical therapist. This measure is a very gross measure that categorizes patients from a stage one, one one-and-a-half, two, two two-and-a-half, three, four, and five. And the categorization is based on a combination of impairments, falling, and disability. So it's a very coarse measure. But when I want to give someone a real quick and dirty explanation of where a patient is in their ability, and I say this person is about a hundred yard, two-and-a-half, Someone who knows that scale has a pretty good picture of what that means.
3: So I'm going to wrap it up. This has been a really interesting conversation. What I take from it, and then I'm going to ask you to give me a summary as well, is that one of the unique aspects of the study is that investigators combined data so that we can begin to see, in this case, how persons with various classifications of Parkinson's disease perform on tests that are commonly used in the clinic. I think that's such a model for so many of us who are doing investigations, and I thank you for that, Margaret. And I also think that the other point is that it's a cross-sectional study. We need longitudinal data. And the third piece is, guess what? We still don't know what to measure to describe the person's disease severity in terms of physical function, or we're not sure what the best outcome measure should be. And that's disappointing.
1: Margaret. Well, I have to agree with your last statement in particular, and I can't agree more that it's disappointing that we don't know yet. But I can say that if one works for a long enough time in a field, And if one keeps changing and growing and allowing perspective to change, eventually one gets to the right question. So I think I'm much better positioned now than when I started working with people with Parkinson's disease to ask some questions that are really meaningful. And the question of how do we get at the right measures for performance, for life, for how do we figure out whether what we're doing is making a difference? I think this is just a starting point. It was tremendous fun, by the way, to put this paper together. We had a lot of fun combining our ideas and our work, and that's exciting. That's very fun to work across institutions, and particularly with colleagues like Terry, who are just so superb. Having said that, I think we're just barely scratching the surface of where we can go as a profession and where we can go with understanding people with Parkinson's disease. Kathy?
2: Yeah, I guess just to add maybe one or two final points, you know, despite the fact that we're on a journey here, Margaret, and that we're not at the end of the road, I do think that your paper expands our thinking about the decisions and choices we make for outcome measures early versus late-stage Parkinson's disease, and I think that's an extremely useful added consideration that clinicians can use in their decision-making about that in practice. The other take-home message for me is that I need to get more familiar with the continuous scale physical function performance (laughs) test. Um, I think it has a lot of potential, and I was not aware that there was a revised 10-item form of the test, and I think that opens the possibility that it will be more practical than I thought it would be, having read the original articles but not having seen that it had been revised. So that was very useful, and I think that's something that could have more use in clinical practice if people were more familiar with that. So thank you so much for enlightening us about that.
3: So thank you both. This has been really fun. I appreciate your enthusiasm.
0: Send us your comments or suggestions about this or other PTJ podcasts via email. PTJ at scienceaudio.net or voicemail 626-593-7825. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. Thanks for listening.